and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio. Uh, today I am joined by Dr. Ashley Gerhard from the University of Michigan. Uh, Dr. Gerhard is here to talk about her most recent uh, publication um, in Addiction titled Highly Processed Foods Can Be Considered Addictive Substances Based on Established Scientific Criteria. Uh, Dr. Gerhard, welcome to Addiction Audio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so like your study uh, looks, it's, it's a really interesting area. So your, your study looks at whether highly processed food uh, foods can be considered addictive uh, substances. And there's, there's so much to unpick here. But what first interested you in highly processed foods? Why focus on highly processed foods? Yeah, so I actually started uh, my doctoral training at Yale in the psychology department, and I was doing alcohol addiction. And when I was there, I was learning about the mechanisms like reward and cues and emotion regulation that seemed to go awry when people um, got addicted to alcohol. And at the same time, uh, the obesity epidemic was exploding. I mean, the rates of obesity diet-related disease were going through the roof. And I started to do some work um, in the realm of food. And I was seeing that a lot of these new, highly processed foods that had started to really dominate the food environment since the 1980s that kind of preceded this huge epidemic really seem to activate so many of the same mechanisms as addictive substances like alcohol and nicotine. And so I got really interested to think, is this true? How far does this metaphor go? Can these highly refined, highly processed and naturally rewarding foods, can they trigger addictive responses just like other addictive drugs? And um, because we all have to eat to me, it was a particularly interesting topic because you don't get to opt out of our current food environment. Yeah, I, I thought I thought that contrast, you, you make that comparison several times in the article about the, the comparison between highly processed foods and, and, and other foods. But you make you make that point really early on that we can't just look at whether food is addictive because it's you know, that's everything. And like you say, you can't opt out. So you've, you've kind of had to focus on a part of that which appears to be specifically addictive. So how did you define, for the purposes of this, this article, how did you define what is a highly processed food? So for us, what we focused on here is based on some of our prior research, where you're totally right. You know, the kind of debate right now, we used to be debating, can people show signs of addiction in the way they consume food? And we've kind of gotten more um, to a consensus in the field. There's still some debate. But in general, we see that those core behavioral indicators of addiction, like loss of control, intense cravings, continued use despite negative consequences, inability to maintain change and relapse, are things that we see um, a lot of people struggling with and how they eat food. But now the big debate has kind of moved to, well, what is the role of food and specifically certain foods? You know, are, are they addictive? And so I felt like we've kind of been going in circles about this question about can certain foods be addictive? And we've done a little work um, where we've kind of asked people about those classic signs of addiction, like the loss of control and the cravings and all of that. And then we've asked them, you know, what foods are you most likely to experience this with? And you know, most people, kind of not surprising, are saying it's the sorts of foods that have unnaturally high levels of refined carbohydrates like processed flours and sugars and or added fats, um, you know, things like pizzas and um, donuts. 
And when we think about that, it makes a lot of sense. Our brain evolved to make sure we were getting enough calories. Our brain's worried we're gonna starve to death. That was our biggest threat for most of human existence. Um, making sure we get enough calories has really shaped the development of our reward and motivation systems. And we are naturally designed to respond to sweet taste, to fatty taste, it tells us it has calories. But through technology, we've gotten really good at stripping out the sugars and the fats from the natural products they occur in, like a banana or like some nuts. And we refine and process it down so it's really potent. And then we create these novel, highly processed food substances that have unnaturally high levels of these rewarding ingredients and the amount of things like protein and water and fiber have been stripped out of them. And so we can eat them so much more rapidly and our body processes them so much more rapidly. So they hit the brain more rapidly. And when we've looked at this in our work, you know, that really mimics how we've created every addictive substance under the sun. You know, we take something out there like a grape and we refine it into wine. We take something like a cocoa leaf and we refine it into cocaine. And so we've been doing this kind of similar process in our food supply. And so we use that term of, you know, does it have refined carbohydrates does and or added fats in the product to help us define what sorts of foods people seem to consume in an addictive way. You mentioned there some of the characteristics of, of addiction um, and they're, you know, they're ones that most people listening to this will be familiar with. Um, I think the the moment reading this article where I had to kind of readjust what I was looking at was was, was realising that you were looking at the substance and not the person. So you know, I'm, I'm just so used to thinking, OK, food addiction. Well, that would be, yes. you know, um, salience, repetitive behavior, whatever, you know, thinking of the, the person's characteristics. But this wasn't this was looking at the characteristics of the substance, which I'm, I'm far less used to doing. And I didn't realize I was unused to doing that until I read this article, which is you know, it's one of the wonderful things about it. Um, so you chose to kind of replicate the Surgeon General's, the US Surgeon General's report from 1988 on uh, nicotine uh, to use that kind of as a framework for looking at highly processed foods. What made you kind of use that as the kind of source material? Yeah, so, I, you know, I'm, I feel like my field is still really controversial and we're having lots of debates all the time. And I realized um, that in my mind, the most controversial topic right now is this idea of are certain foods addictive? And you know, clearly that's a, a big, important question um, because as we've talked about, you know, we're all getting exposed to this. In the US and the UK, um, the majority of calories we're getting are from highly processed foods. And so um, I found that in the debates, it was kind of like that metaphor you hear where everybody's holding on to a different part of the elephant to describe what the animal's like. Oh, no, it has this tiny tail. And when it came to the idea of how do we understand whether a substance is addictive, you know, not whether a person is showing signs of addiction, um, we kind of don't have uh, an essential agreed upon set of criteria. We do have a more agreed upon criteria when it comes to identifying who might be struggling. You know, we have the diagnostic criteria and the ICD and the DSM. And that's how in my research, we've identified who we think might be struggling with an addictive pull from these certain foods. But the substance is key. Um, and I think, you know, we can see that when we look at addiction epidemics, 
like what we've seen with industrial cigarettes, that as um, when there's a new technology like uh, tobacco rolling machines and all of a sudden cigarettes can get rolled rather than a few a minute by hand, but 10,000 a minute, uh, a big industry pops up and they figure out how to optimize those with nicotine, extra nicotine and flavor additives and they market it and they make it cheap and accessible. And when that environment changes around an addictive substance, especially one that we don't know is addictive, we see that millions of people die, you know, and, and we can't educate people out of it. You know, people will know that cigarettes are killing them, uh, but they struggle to stop. And so when I look at what's happened with our food environment, I see a lot of the hallmarks of an addiction epidemic where you know, the amounts of excessive intake and obesity and diet-related disease and binge eating have skyrocketed since the time that our food environment has changed and highly processed foods have started to dominate it. And people want to quit. I mean, dieting is a trillion dollar industry. Most people are trying to cut down on junk food on any given year. And most people fail, even though they really want to, right? So I started to look back to say, we need some sort of benchmark that has been used previously to help us identify what is addictive and whether a substance is addictive, especially a legal, easily accessible, non-intoxicating substance whether that was actually addictive and apply that similar benchmarking in the context of these highly processed foods. And tobacco to me was perfect um, because it was hotly contested. I mean, you, for decades, whether that was actually addictive because it didn't look like other drugs, right? You, you could drive your car and smoke a cigarette. You didn't have to break the law to get a cigarette. You just walked to the local shop. You know, a lot of those things are really similar to what we see with foods and um, Big tobacco created the current big food environment. When R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris, you know, needed to diversify their portfolio streams in the 70s and 80s, they bought food companies, they bought Kraft, they bought General Mills. They became the biggest producers of processed foods in the world from 1980 through the mid-2000s at the exact same time that our food environment went off the rails. So what a perfect substance to look to. Um, so, you know, the watershed moment that at least in the United States kind of moved the scientific and public perspective that these weren't just bad habits. These just weren't cigarettes weren't just, you know, bad for you. And you just had a bad habit that you just needed to try a little harder to quit. But no, these were addictive substances that could hook you was that 1988 Surgeon General's report. And it's held up to the test of time. Addiction just published an article in the last year that, you know, it's those criteria have stood up to decades of scientific evaluation um, to help us identify accurately that tobacco products were addictive. So it's like, let's use those. No reason to recreate the wheel, right? So that's that's how we decided on that as our benchmark. So you make comparisons with nicotine throughout, and and, and that's quite. And I think it's helpful for the reasons that you describe about it being a, a legal substance, the uh, the big industry behind it. But one of the things that grabbed me was the the lack of an intoxication syndrome, like neither. Uh, neither nicotine nor um, nor foods have the, the same certainly the same level of intoxication as things like you know opiates or cannabis or psychedelic drugs or whatever. For people who who might struggle with this, like how how can something that doesn't intoxicate you also be addictive? Uh, that's a great question, and so um, you know I think when you look back at tobacco, that was certainly the biggest stumbling point, right? It didn't look. You know, and the industry would use that, right? Would you rather have your daughter bring somebody 
home who's using heroin or smoking a cigarette. You know, clearly this is outrageous to suggest that our products are addictive. Um, and what we see, I think what we're understanding more and more about the field of addiction is that what addictive substances do, what might arguably be an even better predictor of whether people get hooked and get compulsive in these compulsive cycles of intake isn't necessarily the amount of pleasure or liking you get at the moment you consume them, but the ability that they have to sensitize motivation systems to want more and more and more and to make those cues that signal to you that they're available so potent and salient. And so when we look at addictive drugs, cigarettes and tobacco products are arguably our most addictive drug that we currently agree is an addictive substance. Um, you know, most people who use addictive substances don't get addicted, right? 90% uh, of people drink alcohol and only uh, you know about 15% develop an alcohol use disorder. When we look at tobacco products, even though they're not addicting, um, about um, of those who smoke, about a third of them will do, get hooked on cigarettes and really struggle to quit. More people are dying from cigarettes than alcohol and opioids and cocaine combined. Right? So clearly cigarettes, despite not intoxicating you, despite not being you know, blissed out or you know, super uh, you know, but out of your mind altered, um, are highly addictive. And they do have subtle impacts on mood, on reducing negative affect, on increasing pleasure. Um, they do impact the way that you function, but not in such an extreme way as something like opioids and alcohol, but they can still hook you to the point where you know they're killing, you, you know, you know that the substance is going to kill you and you want to stop and you can't. And so the hallmarks that we look at, I think, to really understand what is addictive and you know, what is killing people, what do we need to attend to, um, doesn't really... Uh, intoxication doesn't seem to be the best discriminator there. Um, and so, so you, you talk about these uh, these four categories within the Surgeon General's report. What what were those four uh, four items against which you measured uh, highly processed food? Yeah. So the four. Uh, well, so the Surgeon General's report used three, and then a current review of the science suggested that a fourth was warranted to be added. And so, to be as thorough as possible, we included all four. So the three that were in the Surgeon General's report was that. Um, tobacco products cause compulsive use, meaning that people you know, would use it. And even if they wanted to quit, even if they were having life-threatening consequences, they couldn't cut down. They were kind of stuck in this compulsive pattern of intake that was really challenging to quit. Most, most folks who were smoking tobacco said they wanted to quit and they couldn't. And that they would find out they had lung cancer diagnosis and know they needed to quit and they couldn't. And so that compulsivity was key. The second one was that there was some impact on mood, that it would shift, you know, you'd get a little peak of pleasure, you'd get a little bit of reduction in your stress, and that it was impacting the brain, that, you know, that the brain, the way that the brain was impacted, and that was leading to um, a shift in mood. And, you know, really at the time of the Surgeon General's report, we really knew very little about how exactly nicotine and tobacco was impacting the brain. We didn't have the sort of imaging that we had now. Um, so a lot of that was based on, you know, animal brains that we could see that it would activate the animal brain. Uh, we didn't really know how or why. There was no sort of biomarker. 
And um, that people, when they smoke cigarettes, said, oh yeah, that, that gave me a sense of pleasure, that gave me um, some stress reduction. And that you could use antagonist to block the effect of nicotine in the brain and that animals would then um, not, not administer it the way they did. So some, something about the brain's involved in its shifting mood. The third one is reinforcing, meaning that people and animals will work to gain access to this substance, that they, they want it, they will work to get it. Once they've used it, they wanna use it again. Um, and then the fourth one that's been suggested is being added is that it induces strong cravings and urges. And that's come from a lot of the science that again, the cravings and the urges and this enhanced desire really seems to be central and kind of keeping people hooked and leading to relapse. So those were the four benchmarks that we used and then we applied them to our understanding of the science of highly processed foods and also considered, you know, do these minimally processed foods, the nutritious foods that people aren't eating enough of, um, you know, do they meet those benchmarks, yes or no, to really help us hone in on to what degree is it really these kind of highly processed foods that meet the addiction criteria, not all foods. And in terms of your findings, um, I guess I guess one was that was there was there enough of an evidence base to indicate that highly processed foods uh, were addictive, like in their nature. Um, so I guess that's kind of one question, and, and I guess the follow up question is like, were there any gaps where we where we're not yet quite so sure? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, our my co-author and I, based off of looking at the level of science that was out there, and my co-author is Dr. Alexandra DeFelis Antonio, who's at Virginia Tech, um, and she's a neuroscientist and psychologist, and she does fascinating work, has done it in both animals and in humans. Um, we looked at the evidence base and looked at the evidence base out there that was needed to say that tobacco was addictive, and we did feel that the evidence was warranted um, that highly processed food checked every single one of those boxes. Um, you know, I think it's very clear to us that um, highly processed foods can be consumed compulsively. You know, we see people get a diagnosis of diabetes or cardiac disease, and they're unable to shift their diets despite the fact they know that it's killing them. Uh, one example that's really clear is um, with gastric bypass surgery. I mean, people go through really extreme surgeries and get their stomach, part of their stomach cut out to try and get control of their intake, um, uh, excessive caloric intake. Um, about 20 to 40% of people regain the weight within a couple years. And one of the reasons, um, one of the main reasons is excessive intake of these highly processed foods um, and that the cravings for those are hard to manage. And that that continues even though when people, after they've had gastric bypass, if they eat uh, ice cream or a cheeseburger, they will immediately get physically ill and have this syndrome called dumping syndrome, which is very aversive. And yet the compulsive excessive intake, despite the surgery of highly processed foods, continues for a substantial portion of people to the point that it completely undoes the, uh, undoes the effect of the surgery. And to me, that there couldn't be more clear evidence of compulsive intake. Um, when we look at the effect of impact on mood and the role of the brain, when we look at the exact measures of the mood altering properties that were used to say, oh, look, nicotine can cause euphoria, can shift mood. When we look at something like chocolate, it changes um, mood and induces euphoria to almost an identical degree as nicotine does. So for that magnitude of change of mood, um, that's clear. 
And when we look at the degree to which nicotine um, induces dopamine release in the striatum of the brain, which is probably the closest we get to a biomarker of addictive potential, it's usually about 150% above baseline of nicotine release in the striatum of the brain. We see that sugar, fat, ultra highly processed foods, whether they're delivered in the mouth or in the gut, lead to an almost identical magnitude of dopamine release in the striatum. So when we think of the effect on the mood and the effect on the brain, almost identical to nicotine. When we look at reinforcement, one of the big ways that we tested reinforcement is we've had rats choose between cocaine and nicotine. And so you gotta choose one rat, what are you gonna choose? And 80% of the time, you know, the rats will choose the cocaine over the nicotine. Rats don't find nicotine all that reinforcing, really. In contrast, we see the exact opposite when we look at things like sugar and sweet taste. Rats will choose sugar and sweet taste in highly processed foods over cocaine about 80% of the time. So clearly these are highly reinforcing. Kids and adults will work on a classic reinforcement task to gain access to highly processed foods and that that gets sensitized. The more they consume the highly processed foods, the more reinforcing they find them. In contrast with vegetables, the more you eat the vegetables, the less reinforcing you find them, the less you wanna work. You're like, please take them away, I don't want them anymore. And that kids and adults who are most vulnerable to excessive weight gain are more vulnerable to the reinforcing effects of these highly processed foods, not minimally processed foods. And then when we look at cravings and urges, People, the number one, the foods that people find most craved that have the strongest urges are these highly processed foods. Cravings for these sorts of foods are associated with obesity, binge eating, and diet failure. In contrast, people don't crave fruits and veggies all that often, but when they do, it actually leads to better outcomes. You know, they're more likely to be healthy, they have better sleep, they function better. So, from our opinion, you know, all four of those benchmarks are checked when it comes to highly processed foods. And minimally processed foods just don't check those boxes in the same way. Now, clearly, you know, it's not an open and shut case. You know, science never is. Um, and we need to look at more research. You know, a lot of this research wasn't necessarily set out specifically to ask these questions. And so we've kind of, there's been a lot of focus on specific types of highly processed foods, like chocolate has been a main one, sugar's been a main one. And we really, we argue that we need to treat these highly processed foods, not so much as foods per se, but as highly refined substances that have been engineered to be incredibly rewarding. And we need to treat them almost how we've treated you know, addictive drugs to treat to try and uncouple what are the components, what are the delivery vehicles that are most tied to this sort of addictive profile. So we can think about things like reformulation or the restriction of marketing of certain products that might hook you to kids, to teenagers, because kids and teenagers get half their calories as well from highly processed foods. And the levels of diet-related disease, like type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that we used to only see in adults, we're now seeing it um, very prevalently in children as well. So it's really concerning. Um, you don't explicitly cover this in, in your article, and it's not the focus, so uh, you know, I, wouldn't expect you, uh, I wouldn't expect you to. Um, but one of the one of the key issues within um, 
uh, nicotine and tobacco research is uh, is the health inequalities is the yeah. is the difference in prevalence and harms from smoking that are experienced by low income uh, low income families people countries um, and areas uh, are those kinds of environmental factors at play when you're looking at highly processed foods too Rob absolutely we have just started this line of work and we've been focusing a lot on food insecurity which is actually probably better named you know nutrition insecurity uh, so for folks who don't have enough money to get nutritious foods on the table um, we see we just published a study uh, the first study out there that found that um, individuals with food insecurity were anywhere from 20% to 50% more likely to be showing signs of addiction to highly processed foods. And um, this makes a lot of sense because when we look at the environment for individuals who are nutrition insecure, pretty much what they have access to to get enough calories and their day-to-day -day life are highly processed foods. You know, to get enough calories to survive, they are in food swamps that are just drenched and highly processed foods, highly processed food marketing. And those foods are convenient. They're shelf stable, they're cheap. It nudges us in all the ways that we know people get nudged towards addictive substances, which is marketing, which is low expense, which is accessibility. Um, there is a clear social justice issue where for people who are under-resourced, who don't have enough money, they're getting pushed aggressively towards highly processed foods. And to me, you know, I kind of think about this, it, you know, it sounds kind of wild to think about, but you know, up until really the 20th century still now and, and you know, some developing countries, the only way uh, water wasn't safe, though the water supply was polluted, right? With um, you know, runoff from farms, from industry. And so people relied on wine and beer because it was fermented and safer to get enough hydration you know adults and kids because that's what was accessible the poorer you are that was you know the more likely you were to have to rely on that when i look at what's happening now to our food supply kind of feels like we're in the 1800s with alcohol right like you have to have calories to survive and yet our food supply is dominated by highly processed foods that gives us our calories even though we know it's killing us early. It's arguably damaging our mental health as well as our physical health. And that if you're poor, you're even more likely um, to have that sort of food supply and not be able to have access to clean, nourishing foods. It's really fascinating because the in many in many ways the focus on the substance rather than the individual is, uh, still feels slightly counterintuitive to me. But when one of the, the biggest um, players and influences in this are the people manufacturing those things, you have to have the data on the substance so that you can effectively regulate and, and apply policy. And actually, from a public health perspective, that might be the most effective thing that you can do. Um, so, so it makes sense that we need the information on the substances so that we can hold those that, that make those substances to account. Absolutely, Rob. And I, you know, I think alcohol and tobacco give us two stark examples. With tobacco, we focused a lot on the substance of tobacco products and the environment that they're in. And we have developed better treatments for the individual, you know, to get help people who get addicted. And we have, you know, like nicotine patches to help with withdrawal and, you know, um, different medications to, to help people quit. 
Um, but it really was about the focus on the environment and changing the marketing and changing the economics um, and changing accessibility and you know smoke-free laws that led to the biggest, one of the biggest public health victories in our lifetime. In contrast with alcohol, we've really just focused on the subset of people who get fully addicted, right? And we've said, you know, we don't, we've done a really bad job actually using uh, empirically supported, you know, ways of trying to adjust the alcohol environment to change the harms around it. Alcohol is the third leading cause of preventable death. And that is in large part driven, not just by the people who are fully addicted to alcohol, but by the huge swaths of people that drink more than they should in a risky way that sets them up for risky behaviors like getting behind their car or, you know, to get you know, uh, certain cancers earlier, but they're not addicted. They don't need treatment, but in an environment where, you know, the alcohol is cheap and accessible and there's kind of no boundaries around it, we see huge loss of people having subclinical problems with alcohol that has huge public health consequences. And with foods, we're seeing it's the same thing. We estimate, you know, about 15% of people have alcohol use disorders. The current meta-analyses suggest that about 15% of people would meet the full-blown clinical diagnostic threshold for being addicted to these highly processed foods. That's a huge swath of people. They deserve treatment, but it only takes about 200 or 300 extra calories a day to start to gain weight excessively, to start to be at risk for diabetes, to start to be at risk of that. We see on average people experience one to two addictive symptoms in their relationship with highly processed foods. Some beautiful experimental work out of the National Institute of Health finds that if you take the same person and you put them in an environment that's you know, rich with highly processed foods compared to that same person in an environment that's all minimally processed foods, people will unknowingly eat 500 more calories a day in the highly processed food environment. So we, even if you're not addicted, you're gonna feel enough of a pull, eat a little bit more than you should, struggle to, you know, eat that tiny sliver portion size of the cookie that no one ever adheres to, that you are gonna be at risk for health-related issues. Um, in contrast, we can't get people to eat enough fruits and veggies. You know, <laughs> We can give them a huge bowl of salad and people have a few bites and then they kind of push it off. Bowl of ice cream, no worries getting people to finish it. <laughs> you know, I, I would say the only, the last thing I would like to end on is the idea of how much, if we reconceptualize based on the science, as we've done in this paper, that these foods are not just only unhealthy, but capable of hooking you in an addictive way, how much we are in uncharted territory when it comes to kids, right? When you think of children, typically you're not getting exposed to alcohol and cocaine and cannabis and cigarettes when you're two or three years old, right? You usually don't get exposed till adolescence, early adulthood. And even then we know the earlier you start getting exposed, the earlier you use, the more likely you are to develop a problematic relationship with this. When it comes to these foods, again, like I mentioned, that is half the diet for children in the modern world. Our estimates find, you know, I told you about 15% of adults meet for fully blown, you know, addiction to highly processed foods based upon the agreed upon criteria that we use for every other substance. 12% of children are meeting that same threshold. On, on the note of uncharted territory, um, 
Dr. Ashley Gerhardt, thank you so much for your time today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for covering our research. We appreciate it. (laughs) 